0: Good morning, beloved. Happy Lord's Day to each and every one of you. I pray that you have been rejoicing in God's grace all this week and pray that you have been encouraged thus far in the reading of the scripture and prayer, in the singing of God's praises. And I pray that you encourage now as we come to God's word. So let's pray together and let's go to God's word together. Father, indeed, we give you thanks for another day's journey, another opportunity to meet together in this virtual way, uh, to interact with each other, even in the chat, and to hear together at the same time your word. We pray, Lord, that you would feed us by your word, cause us to grow by it, strengthen us in the faith, and make us, oh Lord, more effective witnesses for you, uh, telling abroad the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, give us your spirit, Lord. Fill us with your spirit that we might be able to grow and to do these things for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, we continue this morning in our sermon series, which we have called Strange Times, Same Mission. Strange times because we're living in strange times. We are living in tumultuous times, from the pandemic to political situations in the United States to division in the church over conspiracy theories or political points of view. Uh, This is a remarkably strange time for many of us. And so it's important for us to sort of ask the question, what do we do in such unusual times? And to answer that question, we've been uh, sort of Picking passages in the book of Acts, which itself is a, a record of the strange, the unusual birthing of God's church and the supernatural events around that. We have gone to Acts, ask the book of Acts, to sort of say, hey, what should the church do when the times are unusual? The short answer to that is we should remain on mission. And so we have been in this series thinking about our five M's as a church. These, these are sort of values. These are objectives that we use to help us uh, sort of put into motion our mission. Our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block, right here in our neighborhood, to the four corners of the globe, as far away as Zambia uh, and and the Middle East and, and other places. We want to spread the gospel at home and spread the gospel abroad. That's our mission. Well, how do we put that into practice? Well, we define that with our five M's. We're in the third sermon of this series. The first two were to spread the message M, message of the gospel. Uh, the second was to show mercy to our neighbors. And today we're going to be thinking about shepherding each other to maturity, to spiritual maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to do that, we want to look at a scene in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. And as you turn to Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28, this morning's sermon has two basic points, two basic observations. Number one, we want to observe the Christian's responsibility to seek maturity. The Christian's individual responsibility to seek after spiritual maturity. And then number two, we want to observe the church's responsibility to shepherd to maturity. The church as a whole, its corporate responsibility to shepherd individual Christians toward maturity. And to see that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Look here with me. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus or that the Christ was Jesus. Again, a short passage of scripture here with some rather famous Christians from the early church. A man named Apollos, a traveling preacher and pastor, uh, and Priscilla and Aquila. They're in Ephesus, a major uh, city there in the ancient world in Turkey, modern day Turkey. And and you might divide the passage by uh, a couple of divisions. In verses 24 and 25, we get uh, first Apollos' biography. We get introduced to Apollos. Then we see in uh, verse 26, uh, Apollos' ministry in Ephesus. Apollos' ministry in Ephesus. And then verses 27 and 28. Apollos' ministry in Achaia. So he moves from Ephesus to Achaia to preach there. But as we look at this, we want to use Apollos and the church there to sort of understand something about Christian uh, spiritual maturity. And so we want to think about the Christian's responsibility, first of all, the individual Christian's responsibility to seek maturity. And let me begin with a simple, unalterable, inviolable truth. You are responsible for the quality of your own spiritual life. You and I are responsible for the quality quality of our own spiritual lives. And our spiritual maturity in many ways will be directly connected with the, the extent to which we assume and take responsibility for ourselves spiritually. So while your maturity can be helped by others, your maturity cannot be assigned to others. On the day of judgment, when we stand before Christ, each person will give an account for what they have done in the body. We will not be held responsible for the spiritual lives of other people, and we will not be able to sort of blame other people for the quality of our spiritual lives. You and I are responsible for the quality of our spiritual lives. That means we have a responsibility to seek actively maturity in Christ and the things of God. In our text this morning, our brother Apollos is an example of that, of seeking maturity. He's a role model for us in terms of seeing what spiritual maturity looks like. And from what is said about Apollos in these verses, Uh, I want to suggest about three things that each of us should commit to as we take responsibility for our spiritual lives and responsibility for maturing in the things of Christ. Number one, we should commit to being cross-cultural Christians. We should commit to being cross-cultural Christians. Look at verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now, why is this in the Bible? Every jot and tittle, every letter and punctuation mark of the Bible is inspired, literally breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit carries the prophets and the apostles along, guiding them to write down the very words of God. Now, given that, why does God put this in the Bible? Is he simply trying to make a story a little bit more interesting with some color and detail? Or does God have something meaningful and necessary for us to learn even from this biographical description of Apollos? I think so, because God doesn't waste words. So what does God want us to make of these facts about Apollos? God, I think, wants us to know that from the beginning, he intended his church, his family, to be a multicultural, multiethnic, multinational, multi-class, multi-education level, multi-financial um, status level, multi-everything family, and for that to be the case, now, beloved, then those who belong to the Church of Jesus Christ need to commit to becoming cross-cultural Christian, skilled and adept at interacting with people from every kind of background. That's what Apollos was. He's, He's cosmopolitan, really. Notice, he was Jewish by religion and culture, but he wasn't from Israel. See, the text says there he was a native of Alexandria, which is a major capital city In Egypt which is in North Africa and he was a traveler notice Apollos came to Ephesus which was in modern-day Turkey or is in modern-day Turkey now that's about 850 miles by land you'd have to cross across North Africa across Egypt then you'd have to come through the Middle East, up through Jordan and Syria and Israel, and then you'd come to Turkey, and you'd have to travel back west across Turkey to get to Ephesus. He's not taking that trip by accident. He's not bumbling along. He's moving with intention. See, the events of the Bible are often international and intercultural. This simple sentence reveals Apollos' personal background, yes, but it also reveals that the church from its beginning was a laboratory for diversity and unity in Jesus Christ. I love the way one writer puts it. He says, a church is a cross-cultural laboratory for effective mission. He continues a few pages later, the Bible gives clear evidence that God intends the little clashes of culture in your church to get you ready for the really difficult clashes of culture in missions and evangelism. You see what's being said there? When you're a member of a local church, you're in God's multi ethnic, multicultural family. And in that family, there are little cultural skirmishes. But those are meant to prepare us to go out into the wider cultures of the world and deal with those skirmishes on behalf of Christ and the gospel. Now, for us to be effective at that, we, we need to be self-consciously, actively committed to becoming cross-cultural Christians. So, Christian maturity, of the type that Apollos exemplifies, Christian maturity involves embracing our own ethnic and cultural selves while accepting and engaging others as their own ethnic and Cultural selves. A Christian who is mature doesn't require other Christians to be like them in order to know them, love them, fellowship with them, and be on mission with them. A Christian who is immature, when it comes to cross cultural identity and living, will actually be a divisive force in the church because, in their immaturity, they will not know how to negotiate cultural difference and they will not accept people who are not culturally like them. At ARC, we want to be a church family where Christians of all backgrounds are welcome and where we learn to benefit from Christians of every background. But well, that's God's family. But that requires cultural awareness, acceptance, maturity, and reconciliation. And this beloved is why we're doing the Be the Bridge Groups, to grow precisely in this way, so that we are a diverse yet unified family. a family of God as God intends it to be. A kind of small cross-cultural laboratory that prepares us for the bigger cross-cultural world in which we are meant to take the gospel. Now, being prepared for that requires active investment. And that's what I want to call you to this morning. If if in any way you have been passive about being a cross-cultural Christian, about being a, as Don Carson would call it, a world Christian, I want you to relinquish that passivity. And I want you to pray for an active embrace of this call to become a bit more like Apollos, to bring yourself Fully into the church, and to engage and to contribute to and receive from others who are bringing themselves fully into the church, as God intends it to be. So that's the first commitment as an individual. Here's the second commitment: commit to becoming capable Christians. Commit to becoming capable Christians. That's what we learn about Apollos in that next sentence. Notice again in verse twenty-four, he was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So we're learning three more things about Apollos here. Number one, he was an eloquent man. That means he taught real good. Boy could preach. Number two, we learned that he was competent in the scriptures. He he knew his Bible. He, he, he was able to explain it and to teach it. But notice number three, how he got that way. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That means he had been discipled. He had been intentionally taught how to follow Jesus. That little phrase there, the way of the Lord, I actually love it. Because uh, in the early church, before Christians became known as Christians in Acts 13, they were called followers of the way. And that, that phrase, the way, had a sort of double meaning, right? Because Jesus said of himself that he was the way. The truth and the life. So it was a way of saying they were following Jesus. But it also had uh, reference to the pattern of Christian living. That that to be in the faith was to be in a kind of lifestyle, not just believing in Jesus, but, but behaving as Jesus would have you. And so Apollos has been instructed in that. And as a result, Apollos was a capable Christian. He was capable of speaking, as I said, real good. And he was capable of teaching the Bible to others. He was capable of living like a Christian. And that's why he's a good example to us for what it means to be spiritually mature. We should seek the same. See, he learned to speak publicly. We should learn to speak eloquently. Eloquence is both a gift and it's a skill. Some people are born communicators they just given all the equipment. You know, think of Baba Tunde, Pastor Baba Tunday. We could we would love to just listen to him read the phone book, wouldn't we? He's just been given a, a beautiful eloquence and that that wonderful deep voice. Some people are born to eloquence, gifted with it. But other people have to work on it. Think of Moses, who stuttered. He had to fight through the stuttering in order to, to speak powerfully and eloquently before Pharaoh in Egypt. We should want to learn to do that, even if we're not naturally gifted at it. Now, not everyone will be a preacher. I'm not suggesting that. I don't think God calls everyone to be a preacher or a public teacher of the Scripture. That's cool. But notice what Apollos is eloquent in. Notice what he's capable with. He's eloquent in speaking Bible truth. Now, every Christian ought to want to be at least eloquent enough to speak clearly and beautifully about the Bible and the truth that's taught in the Bible. That's part of what it means for us to be capable Christians. We need to commit to that. Here's the second thing, we need to learn our Bibles. Apollos learned the scriptures. He was competent with the scriptures. That means he was able or capable with the scriptures in the same way every Christian should want to work and to grow in their competence, our competence with the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about head knowledge alone. Because that kind of knowledge is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1. That's what puffs up in pride and arrogance. To to have that kind of knowledge, all you can do is open a Twitter account. That's not what's in view in the Bible. All you need to do, or what we need to do, in order to sort of learn the Scriptures, is to apply ourselves to the study of the Scripture. Not just to have it up here. But to have it in here, inflaming the heart, and to have it come out of here, in practice, in application, in actually doing what the Bible instructs us to do. Now, that that kind of knowledge has a different end. It doesn't puff up. It leads to love which builds up. Remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Verse five, he told Timothy that he had left Timothy in the same city in Ephesus to tell people not to teach anything that was contrary to sound doctrine, nothing contrary to the Bible, right? And the apostles teaching. And then he says, this is why, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Knowledge then, or doctrine, is meant to lead to love from, the, from a pure heart and a good conscious and sincere faith. And so the question becomes, when we are thinking about spiritual maturity and thinking about Bible knowledge as it relates to spiritual maturity, the question becomes, does our Bible knowledge mature us in love? Does it make us love better? Because if we got a lot of head knowledge, but we don't know how to love people, that's a problem. That is immaturity. But if what we know, even if it's a little bit, helps us to love better, well then we're on the path to maturity. Because we're on the path of grace. And so are we competent in the Bible? Do we understand it? Can we teach it? Can we unfold its meaning? And does it lead us to love? Is another thing. Notice what what my man received, Apollos received. He received discipleship, as we were saying a moment ago. And so like Apollos, we should seek out someone to help us understand um, the, the life, the way, more fully. Now, I think this is a great failing in too many churches today. It's possible to be converted and to have a sincere faith but never have someone teach you the basics of the way of how to follow Jesus. I mean, we could spend years kind of picking up bits and pieces from sermons we hear or uh, Bible studies that we're told about so that we we look more or less Christian. But then if someone asks us to do something simple like pray in public or to, to teach a Bible study, or befriend someone who is suffering. Well, then we we feel our weakness and we feel our immaturity. No, we We might even feel a touch of imposter syndrome. Why? Well, that's because a great many churches have wonderful Sunday services, but do not have a culture of disciple-making, of intentionally teaching people how to follow the way of the Lord. Now, even though that might be the case in with a lot of churches, as i said before, we still have an individual personal responsibility uh, to seek out discipleship from others, to learn from others. So don't be passive in this area. If there's some area where you don't know the way, right, you don't know how to follow Jesus, seek someone in that area that you respect and admire and trust and ask them to show you what they do. Ask them to teach you what they have learned. So you could be a Christian who has never learned to pray or to read the Bible, study the Bible. Okay, then ask someone to to walk with you and to teach you that, help help you to learn that, seek someone out. Or you may be a Christian who has never been taught how to date or how to be married. All you know about that is what you picked up from the world. Oh, please, don't stop there. Ask someone to help you how to live in those areas of your life. That same applies. You might be someone who has been a Christian for a number of years, but you've never been taught how to parent your children in a way that's consistent with the, with the Christian faith. Seek someone out, someone who's parenting you, you admire. Ask them to help you in that regard. Or you may be someone, a Christian, who has never learned the fear of the Lord and personal worship. Seek someone out. You get the point. Take responsibility for becoming a capable Christian who follows the way of the Lord in every, every area of life. There's the third commitment. So commit to being a cross-cultural Christian. Commit to being a capable Christian. Commit to being a convincing witness. A convincing witness is part of the commitment to spiritual maturity. Notice verse 25 that Apollos being fervent in the spirit in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So say before Apollos is a traveling preacher. Uh, not all of us are called to be traveling preachers or preaching pastors. So how does this apply to us? Well, we are all called to be witnesses. We may not speak from pulpits, but we must speak up publicly about what we have believed concerning Jesus. We have to testify. We we have to evangelize. Every Christian is a witness. So we ought to want to commit to being convincing witnesses powerful witnesses in behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Apollos models that for us. And once again, three things to observe about Apollos as a preacher or a witness. Number one, fervency. You see, it says there, he was fervent in spirit. That means he was zealous. What a wonderful quality. Today, we might say he was on fire for the Lord. Apollos is not coasting toward heaven. He is not simply passing time. Apollos is stirred up. Apollos is aflame for the things of Jesus. He's like a pot boiling over with passion for the Savior. We ought to be committed to fervency ourselves. Remember the command of Romans chapter 12, verse 11. When the Bible says there, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. In other words, we should not be lazy, slothful, when it comes to passion, zeal, for Jesus. We should keep ourselves stirred up for the Lord. We should do the Lord's work like he could come back right now. Because he could. We're meant to be convincing witnesses, and that requires that we be fervent in spirit. Notice the second thing. Accuracy. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. In other words, Apollos got the gospel correct. He was accurate with the good news of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, resurrection, and his second coming. When it came to those things, Apollos was center mass. He was was bullseye. If we're going to be convincing witnesses, we can't be hemming and hawing about Jesus' crucifixion, about the fact that he's the son of God and God incarnate, about the fact that his crucifixion was not for his sins but for humanity's sins. We can't be slippery with, with the reality of the resurrection. He rose. Three days later, he rose again. And we must be sure that he is coming again, just as he promised. We've got to hit the the bullseye when it comes to accuracy with the gospel. If we're going to be faithful witnesses, then we need to commit to being, being accurate with the good news of Jesus. We don't ever want to bear false witness about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We want to get that right every time. And this is why in our new membership process, one of the questions we ask people when we have their membership interview is what is the gospel? We want to be sure that every member of this church is a convincing witness to the gospel's power in their own life, that they have repented and believed in Jesus, and that they are able to articulate clearly to others that same gospel message, which is the power uh, of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We want to make sure that every member of our church is a good steward of this message so they can be convincing witnesses with us of this message. We cannot consider ourselves mature if we cannot speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus, the gospel. But now there's a third thing we learn here about, um, about our brother Apollos. It's transparency. Notice that Apollos only knew the baptism of John. In other words, there were some holes in his knowledge as a witness and a disciple. He knew the gospel, but he didn't know everything connected with the gospel. And this is an important thing that he did not yet understand. And he apparently was transparent about that in his his teaching. So he, he taught what he knew and maybe he said some things here that he thought he knew but he didn't know quite well or maybe just by omission it was obvious that he didn't know some things but in any way in any case his his ignorance to use the word without a negative connotation his not knowing was known was transparent now the baptism of john was a baptism of repentance it was a baptism with water that John practiced in preparation of Israel for receiving the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But John himself said in John chapter 1, verse 33, that his baptism was with water, and it was different from the baptism that was to come, the baptism that the Messiah, Jesus, would bring, because that baptism would be a baptism with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, John says, I'm going to immerse you in water, but when the Savior comes, he's going to immerse you in God. He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And that's what Jesus did. So John was a temporary transitional leader pointing toward Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment. And Apollos is kind of stuck between that transition. He's still thinking about John's baptism when the greater baptism has come. So he's got some things that he doesn't yet know. So as eloquent as he was as a speaker, as competent as he was with the scriptures, right? As zealous as he was for the Lord and as accurate as he was with the gospel, there were still some things, some important things that Apollos didn't know. Note very carefully, it is entirely possible to be a great speaker with good Bible knowledge and to have been well taught and to be fervent for the Lord and still have an area of immaturity in our lives. In other words, we could be mighty preachers like Apollos or unknown saints in the crowd we're all going to have some areas in our lives where we need to mature, where we need to grow into the fullness and the likeness of Christ. And we need some transparency about that so that we can see and others can see where we need to grow. Let me ask just a couple of questions here. Are we keeping our spiritual fervor? Or are these strange times turning us into spiritual couch potatoes? I mean, we're having online services, but I don't want you to think you're a member at Bedside Baptist. We're still at Acosta River Church, and we still got a mission, we still got work to do, and we need to be stirred up for the Lord in doing it. Or a second question, are we accurate with the gospel? Can we explain the things concerning Jesus Christ with confidence from the gospel itself? from the scriptures itself. We need to know the scriptures and we need to know the gospel so that we can open the book and show people in the book, the good news of Jesus. Or third question, are we transparent with the things we know and the things we don't know? Or are we pretending that we have nothing left to learn? You know, you can't pour more water into a full cup. And so if we're walking around like we're full, And yet we serve an infinite God who always has more to give us. Well, we can't take on that more if we're pretending to be so full. So are we transparent about what we we don't know as much as we are about what we know? So let me put this question, final question, a different way. Is there anything about the character and the work of God that makes you go, oh, I wish I knew God better in that way? I wish I knew more of him in that way. And do you have a plan for getting to know your God better in that way and growing in maturity with him? So when it comes to our individual responsibility to seek to mature, we want to commit to becoming cross-cultural Christians, capable Christians, and convincing witnesses. Those are the individual commitments we could infer from this text um, as we pursue spiritual maturity, it's a way of taking responsibility for our own spiritual lives. But that brings us then to a, a second observation from this text. We want to observe the church's responsibility now to shepherd individuals to maturity. The church has a responsibility too. And by church here, I mean the, the whole community of God's people, the whole covenanted congregation. Of God's people. We are covenanted together to shepherd one another, to lead one another, to encourage one another to grow up into Christ and His stature. Here are two ways that our church's covenant express something of this corporate commitment to help the individual mature in Christ. These are two passages from our church covenant. First is this We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. And then a little bit later, we will seek by God to help to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice the, the plural pronoun we. We're acting together in this. And the we very often is teaching or admonishing or encouraging or forgiving the individual. We are shepherding, we are shepherding persons to maturity in Christ. Now, for a church to carry this out, individual members must have the correct attitude and posture toward the church. And for the church to carry this out, the church as a whole must have the correct attitude and posture toward individual members. And I want to bring out sort of two attitudes and postures that I think are in this text. The first is humility. If we are proud, we will not be teachable individuals. And if we are proud, we will not be a gracious community. Pride strangles growth. So notice Apollos' humility here. Consider it. Verse 26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, we know he was eloquent, fervent, capable with the scriptures, accurate with the gospel. So it's right, it's it's reasonable to assume that this was a good sermon full of truth. He's speaking boldly in the synagogue. Now, it's hard to believe that a preacher with a reputation like this is like always the most humble dude. It's hard to be humble after you've preached a good sermon. The flesh wants praise. It's even harder to take critique after you have preached a good sermon because the flesh does not want any kind of critique. I mean, how many preachers step right out of the pulpit ready to be helped and instructed by members of the audience? Not many. But Apollos allowed himself to be pulled aside and instructed. This is a humble dude, which makes him teachable and able to be shepherded toward humility. But now notice Aquila and Priscilla in the rest rest of verse 26 there. There the Bible says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They too, representative of members of the church, demonstrate for us real humility. Notice now, first, they listen to Apollos. They heard him. There's some people in churches who are too proud to hear from anybody but the main pastor. Who are too proud to hear from anybody but their favorite teachers and preachers. They won't receive from anyone else, but that's not Aquila and Priscilla. Second, Aquila and Priscilla, notice, took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is a very gracious and humble act on their behalf, because they're not trying to prove how much they know. They're not in some contest with Apollos in front of the congregation to sort of maintain some status and to demonstrate that that they actually know more than Apollos do. And, And they're not in some name-dropping attitude. or they they like, yo, we to rock with Paul. So, you know, they're dropping Paul's name everywhere in order to bring attention and status to themselves. thats That's not in them at all. They simply want Apollos to be as strong as Apollos can be. See, humility takes interest in the other person's well-being. It takes interest in the other person's promotion, not its own. Notice also their humility when they took him aside privately. They don't confront Apollos publicly. They found a quiet spot where they can talk without embarrassment or defensiveness. And that too is an act of humility. see, humility will make you tactful. Humility will make you considerate of the other person's feelings and reputations and will guide us in determining how best to try to communicate what might be difficult to communicate, but would be for the other person's best. If a church is going to be the kind of community where people have room to grow and to mature, well, it's going to have to be the kind of church that, takes a risk to let Apollos preach, even though he doesn't have everything nailed down doctrinally. And it's going to have to be the kind of church that um, humbly comes alongside an Apollos, who, who himself is humble and teachable, and explains the way of God to him more fully in a context, at a time, in relationships that are nurturing, like the one we see here with Aquila and Priscilla. That's got to be the culture of the church if individuals are going to flourish as best as possible. But now there's a second attitude or posture we want to observe here, and that's encouragement. We all need encouragement if we are going to grow in healthy and constructive ways. Notice how the church at Ephesus encouraged Apollos in verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. him. Now, the brothers probably refer to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, but it could just as well apply to the entire congregation. In either case, they did not um, tear Apollos down. They built Apollos up. And they, they furthered Apollos' credentials and recommendations by writing this letter to other churches. That was in New Testament practice. If you had someone like Apollos who was an itinerant preacher traveling and preaching in various places, well, the church that he was just at would send a letter of commendation to um, the church that he was going to. And so here, this church in Ephesus is doing that very thing as a way of encouraging Apollos, building him up, furthering his ministry. Let me think about it. Do you know how many churches, how many congregations would have canceled Apollos once they learned he didn't understand the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism? A lot, I bet. But the church in Ephesus recognized so much grace in Apollos' life that they both discipled him further and recommended him further. And that's a a lesson for us too, isn't it? Think about how many things are said about Apollos in these five verses. And then just sort of divide them into two columns between the things that are said that are positive and the things that are said that are negative. The strengths that are listed and the deficits that are listed. We've got five or six things that are listed as strengths for Apollo, Only one deficit. It's not like he only had one deficit. But grace will teach us, humility will teach us, encouragement will teach us to only focus on the deficit that must be focused on and then to spend most of our time commending what is actually possible. That's the kind of context in which people grow and mature uh, in a healthy and a constructive way. And notice the result of that, verses 27 and 28. When Apollos arrived, He greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I see there are at least three tremendous results of Apollos' growth and the church's shepherding him toward maturity. Notice number one, the new believers were built up. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He strengthened the church, not just a little bit even, greatly. Number two, the Jewish opponents were refuted. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public. That's a convincing witness. He stands up in front of folks who reject Jesus as the Messiah, and he takes down their every argument against Jesus and exalts Jesus in his public preaching. And number three, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He opens the Bible, lets the Bible speak. He lets people see from the Bible that Jesus really is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God to save the world from their sins. But he's doing this, of course, with the Old Testament. He doesn't have a New Testament as we do. But nonetheless, he opens those pages and Jesus jumps off. and People can see the Lord and believe in the Lord. See, when we grow into maturity, We grow in as witnesses. And when we grow as witnesses, the word spreads, the gospel spreads, the Bible gets taught. Enemies to the gospel are silenced as their arguments are refuted, and the truth about Jesus is exalted as we proclaim his name. The saints are built up, churches are strengthened, people are discipled. Maturity is a community project. We have to take individual responsibility for our own spiritual lives, but nonetheless, we are doing it together as one family. Encouraging one another, building one another, uh, shepherding one another toward the truth. And so if you're listening this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want very much to understand that what what we are inviting you to is a relationship with God in which you may begin knowing nothing But in time, with teaching, from the Scripture, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will change and grow and blossom. Sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in surprising ways. But you will look up day by day, year by year, decade by decade to discover that you have been steadily becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what we mean by maturity. So what I want you to do is think about Jesus. By who he is, what he was like. He is the son of God who in humility gave up equality with God, didn't think it's something to be jealously grasped, but instead he made himself of no reputation. And and in doing that, he, he came to earth and he took upon himself our likeness, our flesh. So here you've got God, the son of God, coming to earth to become like us. And he lives in our flesh for 33 years thereabouts without sin, not once. A perfect life of love and obedience to God the Father. And when he does that, he's accomplishing something for us. He's accomplishing a perfect record with God for us. That's what we mean by righteousness with God. To be able to stand before God and not have any negative things said about you no sin held against you no no act of rebellion charged to you but to stand before God righteous that's why Jesus obeyed God perfectly and why you and I don't because we can't and then the bible tells us that this same Jesus who loved the poor who who who, who loved Um, women who were on the margins of society and included them, who, who healed the sick and fed the hungry. This same Jesus, who was perfect in every way, he voluntarily sacrificed his own life on the cross to pay the penalty for sin that you and I deserve. He died for us. And and that death was a punishment from God. That's why anything dies. That's why everybody dies, because God, in his judgment against the world for sin, has decided that death would be the consequence. Jesus takes that punishment. He endures that curse. God pours out his anger on Jesus on the cross so that you and I would not have to suffer that. So hear what I'm telling you. provides your righteousness, and Jesus takes your punishment. That's what the cross is about. He dies, he's buried for three days. Three days later, God raises him from the grave, and that has meaning too. It means death is defeated. Death does not have the last word. It means the grave will be empty because the dead in Christ will rise to meet him, to enjoy him in his kingdom. It means that God has accepted his sacrifice. That what Jesus did on the cross is finished. It's done. It's complete. There are no more sacrifices needed. There are no more sacrifices that you and I need to make. Jesus has done it all and God is satisfied and the resurrection is the proof. Now, follow this Jesus. Believe in this Jesus that he is the son of God, that he died for your sins personally and that your sins have been forgiven through faith in him and turn away from every other God, every idol, turn away from every sin, turn away from everything that would keep you from Jesus and follow him. If you turn from sin and put your faith in Jesus, this is the promise of God in the Bible. All of your sins will be forgiven you will be declared righteous. In fact, you will be made a new creature and you will begin to grow into the image and the likeness of Jesus. You'll begin to grow in the knowledge and the righteousness and true holiness of God. You'll begin to mature in the way of God. And the reward will be eternal life with God forever in his love. That's what we want for you. More importantly, that's what God wants for you. So today, while it's still day, while you still have an opportunity, repent of your sins. Confess them all to God. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe in him as your God and your Savior, crucified and resurrected for you, and follow him in the obedience that comes with faith. Then come join us and let's mature together in the likeness of Christ. If you put your faith in the Lord, let us know. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. At the end of the service, you'll see a little card on the screen with our contact information. Hit pause. Give yourself time to find a pencil and pen. Write it down. Send us an email. Send us a text or call. uh, Contact us through the website. We would love to know how to encourage you and to help you get to know this Jesus whom we just introduced you to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to grow in Jesus. Give someone ears today, right now, to hear the gospel and believe and to begin a new life with Christ. And help us to walk, O Lord, in faith until we are conformed to the image and likeness of your dear son. Until you come and we see him face to face and are transformed to be just like him. Help us to take responsibility for our own spiritual lives to seek maturity and help us to take responsibility as a church to shepherd one another as best we're able so that we might grow and bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.